You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and... 6-1, since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to the Age of Napoleon. Episode 64 the Last Treaty. Thanks for joining me. Before we get started, I'll remind you once again that you can listen to this and all future episodes ad-free by pledging at least $2 a month on Patreon.com. One more announcement before we get going. The Age of Napoleon is now on Reddit. So if you're a Reddit user, come find us at reddit.com slash r slash ageofnapoleon. I don't really know Reddit, and I would prefer not to spend a lot of time moderating it, so I would appreciate your help in making it work. Anyway. For the last two episodes, we've been exploring the geopolitical stage at the end of the War of the Second Coalition. In this episode, we'll close out this survey of diplomacy with a discussion of the negotiations between Britain and France, which would ultimately produce the Treaty of Amiens, and peace in Europe for the first time in nearly a decade. Then we'll zoom out a bit and assess Napoleon as a diplomat and statesman. As I mentioned, the talks between Britain and France were fated to be slow and difficult. Generally speaking, the more decisive the war, the easier the peace negotiations are. When one side holds all the cards, they more or less dictate terms as they see fit, and the losers have little choice but to accept. But the war between Britain and France was practically a stalemate. Each side had suffered setbacks at the hands of the other, but neither felt their defeats were big enough to warrant concessions at the negotiating table. That's a problem because any negotiation between equals inevitably involves compromise. We haven't really had time or opportunity to talk much about it, But the conflict between Britain and France in the 1790s was practically a world war. Hostilities took place as far afield as India, southern Africa, and the Americas. The British had failed to have much of a direct impact on the ground in Europe, but they had done pretty well in these overseas theaters of the war. A lot of valuable colonies, which had once belonged to France or her allies, were now under British occupation. These conquests didn't look terribly impressive on a map, but they were some of the richest, most strategically important locations in the world. Now they had fallen into British hands, in some cases only at great effort and loss of life. London wanted to hold on to as many as possible. This was going to be tricky because from the French perspective, they had won the war. 
Throughout the conflict, the British had been fighting to snuff out the revolution and restore the old status quo of the 1780s. All of France's conquests rolled back, and a king with some degree of political power sitting on the throne in Paris. There could be no question that they had failed to make any progress towards those ends. Republican conquests were now ratified by their treaty with Austria, and the revolutionary government was only growing stronger and more stable under Napoleon. For nearly ten years, France had withstood the storm, brushed aside every British attempt to gain a foothold on the continent, and defeated every European power which had been lured into war with the promise of British gold, in some cases twice. The enemy had sought to check the growth of Republican power, and yet the Republic was stronger than ever. From this perspective, there seems little question who won the war. Of course, the British probably would have countered, if France had won the war, why was it Britain that occupied so much valuable enemy territory, rather than vice versa? The British could point to actual concrete gains they'd made in the war against France. The French had precious little to show for their contest against Britain, other than the fact of the Republic's survival. This was no dry academic debate. There were over eight years of struggle and bitterness and death behind those opinions. The men who would be negotiating this agreement had spent a good portion of their careers plotting to destroy each other. Everyone had lost something from this war. It would take tremendous effort to reach consensus. The two sides couldn't even agree on what had happened, and now they were going to attempt to reach an agreement on a just outcome. As you may recall, Napoleon had begun making peace overtures to Britain almost as soon as he came to power. Whether or not these proposals were sincere remains an open question. But regardless, the ball was in Britain's court. London held firm for nearly two years before finally reciprocating. In early 1800, Prime Minister William Pitt and his cabinet were ousted, replaced by a new government under Henry Addington. Pitt and Addington were both Tories. In fact, the two men were actually friends and political allies. However, unlike Pitt, Addington had become convinced that the war could no longer be continued. Much of the British establishment, including the king, had come around to this point of view, which is a big part of the reason Pitt had to go. Addington entered office knowing he was expected to make peace he immediately ordered his new foreign minister, Lord Hawkesbury, to reach out to French representatives in London. Hawkesbury is better known to history by a title he assumed later in life, the Earl of Liverpool, under which he would eventually rise to the office of Prime Minister. Of course, with Britain and France at war, there were not a lot of French representatives in London to choose from. The highest-ranking French diplomat in Britain was Louis-Guillaume Otto, Commissioner for Prisoners of War in Britain. On paper, this was a pretty minor position, but Otto was an extremely well-connected and experienced diplomat, who had been with the French diplomatic service since before the Revolution. In practice, he was the shadow French ambassador to a country which did not officially recognize the Republican government. He had been placed in London in hopes of receiving exactly this type of communication from the British. It has nothing to do with our story, but Louis-Guillaume Otto has the distinction of being the first person in history to use the term Industrial Revolution. Just a good bit of trivia. 
Otto and Hawkesbury began meeting together in secret, hammering out a preliminary treaty. Eventually, Hawkesbury sent a British diplomat to Paris to work with French Foreign Minister Talleyrand in the same way he and Otto were collaborating in London. Just like they are today, these types of preliminary talks were a standard feature of negotiations, and just like today, this was arguably the most difficult and significant part of the process. Both sides would have to agree to sit down with their greatest enemy and discuss the possibility of walking away from gains won through untold blood and suffering, would be forced to contemplate what had been unthinkable for nearly a decade. It took a long time. Lord Hawkesbury became foreign minister on February 20th, 1801. The preliminary agreement wasn't ready until late September, over seven months later. In October, French General Jacques Lauriston arrived in London, empowered to sign the preliminaries on behalf of First Consul Bonaparte. A huge crowd of Londoners gathered to meet his carriage. In England, these types of crowds were notorious for rowdy and sometimes even violent behavior, not unlike the sans-culottes of Paris. They were notoriously hostile to foreigners, especially Catholics. The mob surrounded Lauriston's carriage, opened the door, and pulled the general out. On any other occasion, this would have been the beginning of a very cold reception, but the mood of the crowd was celebratory, not violent. They lifted the Republican general up on their shoulders and carried him through the streets, cheering for France and for peace and for Bonaparte. Lauriston was delivered quite safely to his residence after a memorable trip through the city. The people were ready for this long, difficult war to be over. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. The preliminary agreement signed in the fall of 1801 was probably 95% of the way to being a finished treaty. Now it would be handed over to the bigwigs, who would negotiate the final details and sign the document with all the proper pomp and circumstance. But those final details included some of the stickiest, most contentious disagreements between the two powers. Matters that were above Otto and Hawkesbury's pay grade. These issues would be settled by special representatives picked by the two rulers. Once again, Napoleon picked his brother, Joseph Bonaparte, to represent France. Britain would be represented by His Excellency the Most Honorable General Lord Charles Cornwallis, the Marquis Cornwallis. As you can probably surmise from that bombastic list of titles, Cornwallis was quite an august figure. The historian Owen Connolly describes Cornwallis this way, quote, 
no British statesman, save Pitt, commanded more respect. End quote. That might be a slight exaggeration, but even if he wasn't number two, it's probably safe to say Cornwallis was at least in the top ten. Americans probably recognize his name from the War of Independence, during which he led an army in the South, and ultimately was forced to surrender at Yorktown in the final and greatest British defeat of the war. It's another one of those cruel jokes of history that Cornwallis is mostly remembered as a loser. Yorktown was just one incident in a career that spanned five decades, and was mostly marked by success. Cornwallis was exactly the type of man English aristocrats hoped their sons would grow up to be. He was born on New Year's Eve, 1738, making him 62 during the negotiations. Cornwallis came from a world of almost unimaginable wealth and privilege. His father was a baron, his maternal grandfather a viscount. He had the best education money could buy, private tutors, then Eton and Cambridge. But rather than coasting on his family's wealth and power, Cornwallis purchased a commission in the army to fight in the Seven Years' War, where he immediately distinguished himself as a brave and competent soldier. Cornwallis had found his calling. He would serve the British Empire for the rest of his life. I find Lord Charles Cornwallis interesting because he seems like a perfect archetype of the British ruling class of this era. He was educated, refined, and well-mannered. Almost everyone who met him found him friendly, courteous, and a brilliant conversationalist. He was brave and capable in carrying out his duties, and he took his honor very seriously, which was the surest sign of good character in this era. Before his mission to France, he had served as British viceroy in both Ireland and Bengal, in India. Arguably, these were Britain's two most important colonial possessions, and Cornwallis had ruled over both. He had also served in Parliament, and as an advisor to the King, and led armies on three continents. He was a bit of a liberal by the standards of his time and class. Cornwallis came to believe both the Indians and the Irish were being mistreated under British rule, and tried to improve their lot through legislation. But there were limits to Cornwallis's magnanimity. I think he genuinely wanted to do good but when forced to choose between the welfare of Britain's colonial subjects and the strength of the empire, Cornwallis always chose the latter. The Great Irish Rebellion of 1798 had occurred under Cornwallis's watch, and by his own admission, pro-government Protestant militias under his command carried out horrific abuses. This began during the rebellion as a tool to terrorize suspected rebel sympathizers, but continued long after the insurgents and their French allies had been defeated, as a form of retribution, to teach the Irish a bloody lesson about who really ruled the country. British redcoats got in on the action too. The regular army didn't operate with the same degree of violence and ruthlessness as the militias, but there are many reports of torture, murder, and summary execution of prisoners from regular army units as well. Cornwallis agonized over these atrocities, but ultimately did little to prevent them. The guilty parties were among the strongest supporters of British rule in Ireland, and the main line of defense against the rebels. Despite his conscience, Cornwallis determined he could not afford to alienate the guilty. 
Again, by his own admission, troops under his command had committed similar atrocities during the American War of Independence, albeit on a smaller scale. During his time in India, Cornwallis had a reputation as a reformer. But that was compared to his peers, who can generally be described as cruel and corrupt, some bordering on sociopathic. The humane, refined, well-mannered Lord Charles Cornwallis had presided over some of the cruelest acts of the late 18th century. Of course, it would be unfair to single out Cornwallis and the British. What had Napoleon done when he was disgusted by the excesses of the terror after the capture of Toulon? He requested a transfer, but he didn't risk his neck by acting or speaking out. The people of Haiti would have found the experience of the Irish or the Indians under the British quite familiar, and in their case, the cruel colonial oppressors came from Republican France. So perhaps Cornwallis and the Bonapartes had a lot more in common than any of them would have cared to admit. Joseph Bonaparte was a trained diplomat, and a refined, worldly man in his own right but he seems to have been slightly intimidated by Cornwallis. Playing host to such a high-status person was quite a task. The British aristocracy had a reputation as sticklers for protocol and etiquette. As he prepared for the negotiations, Joseph made an intense study of English customs and old-fashioned aristocratic protocol. He couldn't afford to alienate his guest. The talks would be held in the town of Amiens, on the banks of the River Somme in northeastern France, not too far from the English Channel. As it turned out, Joseph shouldn't have worried so much about proper manners and decorum. When Joseph's carriage arrived at the house where Cornwallis was staying, the Marquis himself came forward to open the door for him and help him down to the street, usually a job for one of the lowlier servants in the house. Joseph was taken aback by this breach of protocol, and for once in his life, didn't know what to say. Cornwallis explained, I hope that is the way we will work. All our etiquette must not delay the peace one hour. Joseph got the message immediately. Cornwallis had come to France to work, not to be wooed with pomp and circumstance. He knew these upstart French Republicans might lack some of the social graces he was used to back in England, and he didn't care. As it turned out, this friendly, informal gesture set the tone for the relationship between the two men. The French and British delegations dined together, then Joseph and Cornwallis retired with brandy and tobacco to begin their conversations. This after-dinner ritual was one of those English customs Joseph had learned about. The French generally did their schmoozing at salons, rather than over liquor and cigars after dinner. Cornwallis told Joseph, quote, I hope we will work to throw off reserve, and not work as diplomats, but as men who sincerely want to serve our governments, and arrive quickly at a solid peace. End quote. Maybe it was the brandy, but Joseph Bonaparte and Lord Cornwallis immediately hit it off. Despite their different backgrounds, and wildly different paths to power, the two men found they had a lot in common. They were cut from the same cloth when it came to values and interests. They even had slightly similar politics, which was probably a surprise to both of them. 
Cornwallis was not terribly impressed with Joseph's diplomatic skills, but he liked him, and more importantly, saw him as an honest broker. These brandy-and-cigar meetings in the late evening became a nightly ritual. Many of the remaining issues between the two great powers were ironed out in this manner. All of the hundreds of thousands of soldiers and sailors, hundreds of ships, fortifications, far-flung colonial outposts, provinces occupied and lost, all the blood and struggle, all the money and munitions, every sacrifice and every ounce of effort through eight years of war, and ultimately it came down to two men hashing things out face-to-face over a stiff drink. Joseph and Cornwallis came to enjoy one another's company. By the end of the negotiations, they were probably as close to being personal friends as statesmen from two rival great powers can be. They would continue to write fondly of each other, even after hostilities resumed. Both sides were lucky that this solid working relationship developed between Joseph and Cornwallis. The other British representatives were, almost to a man, arrogant and condescending to their French hosts, who, for their part, did not take kindly to this high-handed treatment. Napoleon himself proved to be an obstacle as well, because, as always, he was trying to micromanage the whole affair from afar. Cornwallis described his dealings with Joseph this way, quote, After I have obtained his acquiescence on any point, I can have no confidence that it is finally settled, and that he will not recede from it in our next conversation. It seemed like Joseph was always changing his mind because he was receiving a constant stream of instructions from his brother. It seems Napoleon's advice often clashed with Joseph's instincts, thus, this constant back and forth. Joseph and Cornwallis would make tentative progress on some issue at one of their late-night brandy sessions. Then, the next morning, a letter would arrive from Napoleon to undo all their work. Over the course of months, it was two steps forward, one step back. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. So I think we've done more than enough to set the scene. Let's dive into the provisions these two unlikely friends were negotiating. As you might expect, the Treaty of Amiens was a complicated document. There were 22 articles, some of which contained multiple subclauses, or were further expanded upon in other treaties. 
It included such minute details as which dates French fishermen off the Grand Banks of Newfoundland would be permitted to come ashore and harvest timber in British Canada. But we'll focus only on the most important provisions. The French would abandon southern and central Italy, allowing King Ferdinand of the Two Sicilies and the Pope to restore control over their realms. The Netherlands would remain under its pro-French Republican government, the Batavian Republic. France would pay compensation to the House of Nassau, the former Dutch ruling house, now in exile in London. In return, Britain would recognize the Republican regime in The Hague as the legitimate government of the Netherlands. Britain also agreed to recognize Republican conquests in Germany and northern Italy, but that wasn't much of a concession, since France had already secured recognition of all these annexations from Austria. Both sides agreed to evacuate their troops from Egypt and turn control of the province over to the Ottomans. In practice, this was really more of a concession from the British, because the remaining French forces in Egypt had already surrendered by the time the agreement was finalized. Britain would withdraw from Malta and return the island to the rule of the Knights of St. John, and evacuate several other small Mediterranean islands seized from the Spanish. The Dutch outpost on the Cape of Good Hope in modern-day South Africa would be returned to the Batavian Republic, but British ships would retain the right to stop at the colony to resupply and use its facilities. French, Dutch, and Spanish colonies in the Caribbean would be returned to their former owners. So what did the British get in exchange for all these concessions? Basically, two colonies. The island of Trinidad, just off the coast of Venezuela, and the island of Ceylon, off the coast of India, today known as Sri Lanka. That might not sound like much, but these were both tremendously profitable and strategically valuable colonies. So, all told, the Treaty of Amiens was a bit of an anticlimax. After eight years of the bloodiest, most expensive conflict in modern European history, in which both sides had dug as deeply as they could, the result was nothing more than a typical, old-fashioned 18th century treaty in which the two powers traded a few provinces and colonies, and more or less returned to the status quo. Looking over the provisions of the treaty, you get the impression that the French came out on top. This wasn't a massively lopsided agreement like the treaty with Austria, but the British were returning territory to the French, not vice versa. The French would retain control over the all-important North Sea ports in modern-day Belgium and the Netherlands. Remember, these were the most likely departure points for an invasion of England from the continent. So it had always been an important tenet of British foreign policy to ensure they remained in the hands of friendly, or at least neutral, states. And this was noticed at the time as well. Generally speaking, French policymakers were far more enthusiastic about the treaty than their British counterparts. William Wyndham, a member of Parliament and former Minister of War, called the treaty, quote, a death blow to the country, end quote. Now, that was an extreme expression of a minority viewpoint, but it's hard to find any similar sentiments among the French political leadership. France hardly sacrificed anything at all. 
Both of Britain's big prizes were taken from France's allies, not the Republic itself, Trinidad from the Spanish and Ceylon from the Dutch. Both Spain and the Batavian Republic sent envoys to Amiens, but they were effectively shut out of the process until it came time to affix their seals to the final document. As was so often the case, their alliances with France amounted to nothing more than junior partnership. Despite all the revolutionary rhetoric about the liberation of all mankind and the brotherhood of all peoples. The treaty was finally signed March 25, 1802. The negotiations had taken slightly over a year. In celebration, both delegations attended an opera in Paris, where the players had prepared a kind of variety show in celebration of peace. One of the songs went, quote, Englishmen, Frenchmen, stay united. To your songs the universe responds. When such rivals are friends, who can disturb the peace of the world? End quote. When the crowd cheered for Cornwallis, he was apparently moved to tears. We'll talk about the public reaction to the treaty in a future episode. For now, suffice it to say, the news was received with something approaching unbridled joy in almost every corner of the world. But while the public was celebrating, seasoned students of diplomacy had some serious misgivings about the treaty. The public seemed convinced the peace would last for years, perhaps even herald the beginning of a new era in which the great powers of Europe would put the constant warfare of the 18th century behind them. However, there were good reasons to suspect this peace was not built to last. Going into the negotiations, one of Britain's main priorities was the re-establishment of commercial relations with France and her allies. As we've discussed in previous episodes, the loss of these lucrative European markets had been a massive blow to the export sector, and a major contributor to Britain's economic woes. And of course, the re-establishment of commercial ties would help cement the peace between the two great powers. When two countries enjoy good trade relations, they have a strong incentive to avoid military conflict with one another, to keep the money flowing and their merchant classes happy. However, Napoleon had adamantly refused to even begin negotiating such an agreement until the military and diplomatic dispute was settled. After the Treaty of Amiens was signed, the British once again approached France about a commercial treaty, and were once again rebuffed. Bonaparte had zero interest in pursuing commercial relations with Britain. Napoleon correctly identified trade and finance as the foundations which underlay the entire edifice of British power. From his perspective, a commercial treaty would only feed Britain's greatest strength. Furthermore, with so much of Europe closed off to British trade, French manufacturers and merchants were stepping in to fill the void, and in some cases reaping tremendous profits and fueling growth in domestic industries. If European markets were once again opened to cheap British goods, French merchants would lose market share, maybe even go bust. It's easy to see the logic behind Napoleon's decision, but by denying Britain a commercial treaty, he was giving London precious little incentive to keep the peace. This is particularly troubling when you look at it in context with the rest of the geopolitical situation. The Austrians were very unhappy with the new status quo 
As we know, they had only agreed to the humiliating Treaty of Luneville to save their own skins, and planned to use the peace to rebuild and reform their military, so they could take on the French yet again. Franco-Russian relations had improved, but Napoleon had failed in his attempt to draw the Russians into a military alliance. His attempts to bully the Prussians into an alliance had failed as well. Prussia remained an isolated wildcard in European geopolitics. I don't think you need to be a master of strategy to see this is not the recipe for a lasting peace. We've now devoted three episodes to the diplomacy leading up to the peace of 1801. So how do we rate Napoleon as a diplomat? I think Bonaparte was surprisingly able. He had no formal training whatsoever, and that definitely shows. His negotiating style was unorthodox, which sometimes created problems, as we saw in this episode. But overall, his instincts were pretty good, and he was good at achieving his desired outcomes. Napoleon the diplomat was a lot like Napoleon the general, fiercely aggressive, imaginative, and good at identifying the enemy's weak spots and using calculated force to attack them. I can imagine it would have been a nightmare to play poker against Napoleon. However, when it comes to diplomacy, I would make a distinction between someone who's merely a clever negotiator and a truly brilliant diplomat. I think Napoleon was the former, not the latter. It's one thing to get the better of your negotiating partners. It's another to be able to use those skills in service of a greater vision. Truly great diplomats are much more than smooth talkers or accomplished bluffers. They understand what it takes to build a stable, durable geopolitical status quo, and deploy their skills to bring that world into being. This is about much more than extracting concessions from your rivals and safeguarding your own country's interests. It's about building a world in which everyone has a stake in maintaining peace, removing potential flashpoints between the great powers, and creating avenues to settle conflicts without war. Great diplomats are good at getting what they want, yes, but they are also good at doing so without making waves or creating enemies. Bonaparte did not think of diplomacy this way. Walking into a treaty negotiation, typically his only vision was to grab as much as he could for France and weaken his opponents as much as possible. The idea of forging a new status quo that his former enemies and the rest of Europe would feel bound to respect and defend was simply not a part of his approach. To Napoleon, the only reliable guarantee of peace was his rival's fear of the French army. Those who study Napoleon assess this tendency in different ways. To some, this is evidence that Bonaparte was a bloodthirsty warmonger, who saw peace only as an opportunity to increase his own power and put France in a better position for the next war. In this view, Napoleon was not much more than a gangster, grabbing as much as he could as fast as he could, in a state of eternal war against the rest of the world, only occasionally punctuated by temporary ceasefires. Given what ensued over the next 14 years, I can certainly see how people might reach that conclusion. Obviously, Napoleon himself had a different view. Looking back at the Treaty of Amiens, he would later write that he would have preferred it if the peace had lasted longer. 
that his only goal at this stage of his career was the internal improvement of France and the consolidation of her recent conquests. Some of his own actions cast doubt on that statement, but I think he believed he was telling the truth. Napoleon believed great power conflict and war were inevitable parts of statecraft. He didn't see himself as a warmonger, but as a realist, who correctly perceived that war was always just around the corner. Of course, that's what most warmongers think, but Napoleon may have had a point. As we've discussed, the 18th century was a violent, tumultuous era. For most of living memory, war really had always been just around the corner. You can see how a man with Napoleon's experiences might have come to believe this. He had been educated to serve in the military, in the wake of the Seven Years' War, and spent his entire adult life fighting. Perhaps there could be no peace between the great powers until one of them finally crushed all the others, once and for all. And who better than France? After all, it was the biggest country in Europe, with the biggest and most effective military. And the revolution had given them an ideological impulse to triumph over the old regimes. When you look at it this way, it almost seems like destiny, one of Napoleon's favorite words. There is another point of view here, that perhaps Europe needed to break out of this paradigm entirely, bring the cycle of warfare to an end, rather than pursue it to its logical conclusion. Napoleon probably would have called that a naive dream, but who knows? The overthrow of the French monarchy, the establishment of an Enlightenment republic, and the conquest of France's natural borders had all seemed like impossible dreams not so long ago. Whatever the future held, for the moment, Europe was at peace, and that was cause for celebration. Next time, we'll take a look at those celebrations, and get a taste of Napoleon's peacetime agenda. Until then, thanks for listening. Hello, this is Matt from the Explorers Podcast. I want to invite you to join me on the voyages and journeys of the most famous explorers in the history of the world. These are the thrilling and captivating stories of Magellan, Shackleton, Lewis and Clark, and so many other famous and not-so-famous adventures from throughout history. Go to explorerspodcast.com or just look us up on your podcast app. That's the Explorers Podcast. Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Levesay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history, a journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at historyofthesecondworldwar.com.